0: Acts chapter number five, and we're going verse by verse through the book, and uh, boy, excited about what we're going to cover this evening. It's been an eventful, a lot going on, and uh, the church is growing, and great things are happening. And I think we've got a a a small thank you, brother Reggie. I think we've got a small idea of what was going on in the church of Acts here in Stratford. Uh, God's working and moving here, but uh, you know, on a smaller scale. Uh, but all the same, I think that there's some things we can gather from uh, the uh, book of Acts here that will help us uh, to sort of have our eye out for uh, what 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 very well could happen here. I think there's some parallels there, and we want to draw from those uh, tonight. Acts 5, once you've found that, if you would stand, we're going to read from verse 12 down through verse number 18. Verse 12 down through verse number 18. The Bible says there, and by the hands of... Of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets, and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least, the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about into Jerusalem, uh, bringing sick folks, and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Then the high priest rose up, and they that were uh, with him, uh, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles. And put them in the common prison. The title of the sermon tonight is this, what to expect when God sends revival. What to expect when God sends revival. I want God to send us revival, amen? But I think when we pray for revival, we need to understand all of what that entails. Both um, the positives, the things we think of, but there's also some things maybe we're not thinking of that come about when God sends revival, and sometimes I think God doesn't send something our way because he knows we're not just quite ready for it. You ever wish God would just drop a million dollars in your bank account? I've wished that from time to time, but then I've come to the realization that a million dollars ruins a whole lot of people. And sometimes God doesn't give you something that you would label as good because he knows you're not ready for it. Why don't we the church if God's going to send us true Holy Spirit acts revival, a book of Acts type revival, boy, we need to be mentally prepared for all that that entails. So let's jump into that this evening and talk about what to expect when God sends revival. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand the message and Lord, help us to leave here tonight determined uh, to do our part so that you can send revival. Lord, our church is made up of a bunch of individuals and as individuals, we need to be as spiritual as possible. And so, Lord, help us to do our part. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, we looked way, way back in Acts chapter number one and Acts chapter number two at the formula for revival. And I gave you three words that begin with the letter U, and I'll probably repeat them for quite a bit longer here. I'd encourage you to write these three words somewhere, um, and you may even remember what they are, but the three words are unity, unity. Unity, unction, and utterance. Unity, unction, and utterance. And we said that for God to send revival, first the church has to be in unity, in unity. We have to be in one accord. We have to be like-minded. That doesn't mean we have to believe every single thing the same as someone else. Uh, you might dot your I's and cross your T's a little bit different. Your emphasis might be on different syllables here and there. Amen. Um, but uh, we need to be in one accord, and uh, when you play a chord on a piano, that's made up of several different notes, but one attribute of a good chord is that those notes don't clash with each other. They sound good together, and we need to be of one accord. So, Unity is of the utmost importance. I would just say that Matthew 18 lays out for us the formula that if you have a problem with somebody, uh, follow the formula in Matthew 18. It works like a charm. Uh, it can be tough to go to someone you have a problem with and settle those differences, but it's biblical. It's biblical, and, um, and then if that doesn't work, there's a way to escalate that uh, up to seeing someone removed from a church. But you need to make sure you follow a biblical model and a biblical plan And we find that unity. Let me just say, though, that unity isn't just getting along. It's also unity in the fact that we all want the same common goal and we share a passion about that same common goal. A passion for the world to reach the world and a passion for the word to preach the word. We ought to want both of those things and we ought to want them with great passion. This is why it it warms my heart to see so many people coming out on a Saturday. Because that tells me that a good chunk of White Oak Baptist Church isn't just concerned about what they can get. They're concerned more about what they can give. And boy, that's a sign that revival is on the way. And so I would say to our church, when it comes to unity, we're heading in the right direction. The next uh, U word letter U uh, word that I gave to you was the word unction. And that word unction means or implies that we're Filled or anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I've made the statement many times, you're not going to get any more of the Holy Spirit. You got all of Him you're going to get when you got saved. The question just remains, how much is He going to get of you? How stubborn are you going to be? I think of the clay on the potter's wheel. And we don't want to give up certain things in our life. We we almost like have a corner or a room in our heart and say, Lord, you can have everything but that. That one's mine. And the Holy Spirit's limited and, and, and can be limited in a heart and life. Can I tell you too that a, a, the Holy Spirit can be limited corporately within a church body? You'll hear me talk a lot about the spirit of our church, the spirit of our church, the spirit of our church. What am I talking about? I'm talking about how the Holy Spirit of God is freely moving and working in our midst. i mentioned in here that I have preached in churches where um, the Spirit of God clearly was not at work. Just sermon landed on dead ears. I've preached the same sermon in churches like this one where, boy, afterwards people's hearts were stirred and they were making decisions. What's the difference? The Spirit of God is limited in some places and He is working in others. So the keys to revival are unity, Unction and then utterance. Once I'm filled with the Spirit of God, I cannot help but speak the things which I've seen and heard. I can't help but open my mouth and tell people about Jesus. I can't help but invite people to a place of great healing. And uh, those three things, when working together... Those three things, when uh, momentum is uh, carried forth within a church, bring about revival. Well, what does revival look like materially? I have written down here in my notes the word growth, growth, and I would encourage you somewhere, maybe on the back of that half sheet, to write down the word growth. What does that word growth mean? And I have two words written below growth. The first one is spiritual growth, spiritual growth. I believe many independent Baptist pastors have made a mistake for years where they focus on numerical growth. How many people can we cram in the building? And uh, we're going to have a day, we're going to push for 500 or 1,000 or 2,000. And listen, if we get 500 people or 1,000 people or 2,000 people to ever attend White Oak Baptist Church in a given week, praise the Lord. But I I have seen it where we push so hard for numerical growth and we neglect spiritual growth. And that's not healthy. That's not healthy. Let me tell you how you get to 500 and 1,000 and 1,500 and 2,000. You get there when the 50 people that show up on a Sunday night are being fed and they're growing spiritually. That's healthy growth. A church that has revival is a church full of people who are growing in the Lord. The Bible tells us that to the full soul, the full soul loatheth the honeycomb, But to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. I hear a lot of people, not here, but I've heard a lot of people over the years, shrug their shoulders or complain about a certain preaching style. Can I tell you that if you come into church with the right spiritual appetite, someone can get up here and preach the most boring sermon you've ever heard. And if you're hungry enough, it'll be sweet to your ears. It'll be sweet to your ears. We're spoiled as Americans. We're spoiled. We get such good preaching... And I'm not talking about my preaching. I'm just talking about in the average pulpit in America. We're spoiled. The average pulpit around the world uh, is preaching apostasy and false doctrine, if they're even preaching Jesus at all. And uh, we, we are, in America, we are prosperous when it comes to preaching. And we need to make sure we come to church with a spirit of, Lord, feed me. Lord, feed me. You hold a baby that's hungry and he cries and cries and cries and cries until he gets fed. And we ought to be crying out spiritually for God to feed us. We ought to approach every service we come to, our walk with God, our devotional time with an appetite for God to feed us. So spiritual growth and spiritual growth brings about numerical growth. Uh, uh, sheep go where the flock are fed. Sheep go where the flock are fed. And if the sheep are being fed at White Oak Baptist Church, more sheep are going to come. And so we need to preach the word and we need to have an appetite of growth. Um, What what does it look like when a church is growing? Well, here's some things for you uh, to consider. In a church that's growing lost or saved, the lost or saved... Uh, You have people get saved in the church services, and you have uh, uh, people who get saved out in the community, and uh, that church is a a lighthouse. Not only are the lost saved, but needs are met. Needs are met. Someone comes into the church or is a member of the church, and they have either a spiritual need or an emotional need, or maybe they come in with an addiction, or they come in with a financial need, or they have a financial need come into their life. What does the Bible tell us in the the book of Acts? I think it was the end of chapter 3 there. It says that the people gave... Of their, of their abundance so that the needs of others could be met. We take of the wealth resources that we have and we give so that needs are met. These are signs, markers of a healthy church. So the lost are saved, needs are met. The discouraged are helped and backslidden people are restored. I've seen many churches where someone backslides and they're blacklisted. They backslide and they're blacklisted. We don't want that person around here anymore. They're not welcome here anymore. I'm just going to say this if you're watching online and uh you are uh you used to be faithful here and you are no longer here we want you here our our our, our arms as a church family are wide open and we welcome you back the backslidden are restored in a healthy church that's seeing revival now uh, part of uh, the, what I want to cover by way of introduction here is that in a church that's having revival detractors and haters are to be expected Detractors and haters are to be expected. There are going to be people that criticize a growing church, no matter how healthy it is, no matter how biblical it is. And you say, well, I expect the lost to criticize a healthy church. I expect the Satan to launch an all-out assault. Can I tell you this? There will be people who will sit on these pews and will leave here and will do more to fight against us than the lost will. That's just how it goes. And if if White Oak Baptist Church is going to see revival, then I'm going to tell you right now, White Oak Baptist Church can expect betrayal. There will be people who are your friends that attend this church who one day will stab you in the back and will do everything they can to try to metaphorically burn this place down, they'll become a tool of the devil to hurt what we're doing here. Such was the case in the book of Acts. We saw last week in chapter 5 how that Ananias and Sapphira were trying to be promoted up in their fame, and they wanted to have their cake and eat it too, and what happened? They were struck down dead. Now, God doesn't strike down everyone dead who's a detractor, and a hater to his work but i will tell you this that those people sometimes they go out and they cause problems against the church what to expect when god sees revival we're going to go verse by verse from verse 12 all the way down through verse number 42 and i'm going to offer you eight thoughts now i know when i say eight thoughts everyone goes pastor we're going to be here forever and heard brother joe say this before the service i think this is accurate Uh, when a preacher tells you he has eight points he's probably going to get through them pretty quick when a preacher says he has two points, buckle up your seatbelt. It's going to be a long sermon, all right? And so uh, you got eight points. And so we'll, we'll, we're going to go move through these rather quickly. Uh, but let's look and see what's going on here in this church that has revival. And let's mentally brace for and pray for what God w- would like to do here, okay? So let's jump in tonight. Eight thoughts. Number one, a Jewish revival. A Jewish revival. Let's not forget that this was happening. In Jerusalem and the Jews were being saved. Go back to verse number uh, 12 here. And what we see here is I see God's great power at work. Look at verse 12. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. There you go again. It gives the location. They were physically together and they were spiritually together. They were in one accord in one place. Look down with me at verse number 15. And again, notice the power of God on display at this revival. insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, every one." Wow. Peter just is walking down the street and his shadow is casting over people and people are being made whole. That's quite something. People with, uh, that are vexed with evil spirits, demon possessed people are coming into Peter's presence and they're being healed. Now, I know there's been some faith healing services in some churches. Some churches, I use that term loosely, um, uh, around America, and I believe the, all of those to be phonies and 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 fakes and shams. I know that might upset somebody maybe watching online, but I'll just say here that uh, back then in Bible days, God had given Peter and the other apostles the ability to be able to perform these miracles. And as I preached several weeks ago, when the apostles died, this miracle working died with them. Why did God give? Paul and or we have, uh, Paul as well, but Paul and Peter and the other apostles these powers because he was trying to establish them as the foundation of the church. He was trying to establish them as the influencers and writers. Of the Word of God. Once the church was established and the Bible was written, there was no more need for that. But I will just say this uh, in a more uh, generic sense. Where there is a revival, a God-sent, heaven-sent, Holy Spirit-led revival in a church, the power of God is at work in that place. The power of God is at work in that place. Look look with me at verse number 13. We see that this revival... Uh, was a a polarizing effort. Look at verse 13. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. A few minutes ago, I said that where there's going to be a revival, there are going to be detractors and haters, all right? I could give some names tonight. I could name drop uh, people uh, who are religious or political um, or uh, famous in some way. And they're probably, and I I could drop names of people who are what we call polarizing individuals. Uh, Someone who is a polarizing individual, it's very hard to find someone who's neutral on that person. They either passionately love them or they passionately can't stand them. I mentioned Michael Jordan in my sermon this morning. How many of you are old enough to remember when Michael Jordan was a big deal, okay? But Michael Jordan was a polarizing character. Let me ask how many of you here loved Michael Jordan that watched basketball? How many couldn't stand Michael Jordan? All right? They're very hard to find anyone neutral on him. Okay. Donald Trump uh, is a polarizing character. People either seem to love him or they cannot stand him. Personally, I would fit in a weir- very weird category. I am neutral on Donald Trump I refuse to be polarized on the guy okay uh, but people are all for Donald Trump I have a neighbor who has a Donald Trump sign in his yard and it says something like Donald Trump is my president and and I think that's crazy okay and he's he's just he won't let it go and then you have people who just hate the man and hope that he dies and and, and goes to a terrible place I'll watch I'll be careful with my language Amen. mean uh, but they can't stand him and and can I tell you that's what was happening here with the church With Peter and the apostles and the church, people were either all for it or, man, they they got as far away from it as they could. They didn't want to touch it with a ten-foot pole. God was doing something great, and there was a polarizing effect that was going on here with this church, with this revival. You may be surprised to find out that there are people who can't stand Pastor Lejeune in White Oak Baptist Church. Can I just tell you that as the church grows, and as the church goes, there will be more and more and more detractors because Satan will be at work to try to tear down a revival that's taking place. And look at verse number 14, and we see that the church can ...continued to be populated. Look at verse 14. And believers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, multitudes, both of men and women. Added to the Lord, multitudes. People are pouring into this membership uh, by the bunches. Just groups of people, men and women, joining the church. This is what a revival looks like. There is spiritual growth. There is numerical growth as a result... Of the spiritual growth. Notice number two: the high priest's reaction. The high priest's reaction. Um, Look, look with me at verse number seventeen of the passage tonight. The Bible says, "Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation." Now, why were the Sadducees and the high priests of the Sadducees, why was he, why were they so upset? In a a sense, really, if you want to just boil down to what it was, they were losing their influence and their power. They didn't care for that. As this church was growing, their influence was diminishing. And they had... To make a decision, are we going to just sit on the sidelines and watch this be taken away from us, or are we going to fight for the the power that we hold? Um, indignation, indignation. What happened as a result? Well, they used their powers within the governmental structure of that time, and they put Peter and the apostles in prison. Look at verse 18 and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Put them in the common prison. So, here Peter and the apostles are out preaching. I mean, they're passionately preaching. People are getting saved. And I mean, I listen, This what was going on in Acts chapter 5, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 2, is every pastor's dream. I mean, it is a dream. And if you are a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ and His church, this ought to be your dream. I've heard people say, well, and we've had people visit here that have said this, and whatever their reason is, we welcome them in. But I kind of scratch my head at this statement. I hear people say, well, I just want to go to a little church. I just, you know, I don't want to go to a big church. I want to go to a little church. Now, we could have the argument over little church and big church and how big of a church is too big of a church and the problems that big churches have uh, another time. But can I say this? Most, If if a church is really preaching the gospel and there are people around them to be reached, that's an important qualifier. If the church is preaching the gospel and the Holy Spirit of God is at work and that church is life and those people are passionate and excited about the gospel, can I tell you, a little church doesn't stay little for very long. I'd rather be in a church that's growing. You know, I I see all the visitors that came today, and boy, my heart just, just bubbles over with joy. Here, people are getting saved and joining the church. Things are happening. I bet Peter goes to bed each night. The other apostles go to bed each night. They are exhausted, but they are filled with joy. And Satan is going to launch an attack through a religion, the Sadducees, and he's going to take them and put them in prison. This is the second time now. Peter and the apostles have been locked up for preaching the gospel. Number three, notice an angelic release. An angelic release. Look down at verse number 19. We see here that God performed a miracle. This is quite the miracle. Look down at verse 19. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said... And we'll look at what he said here in a minute. Basically, he just said, hey, guys, go back in the temple and preach. Look down with me at verse number 21. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest came. Now, I find this humorous, okay? The high priest came, and they that were with them, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison... They returned and told, uh, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. So the angels just came and just walked them right out without anyone seeing them. And the council gathers. Man, they got their coffee and their pastry in front of them. And they're getting ready to hear the case. And, and they go, well, go to the prison and get them and bring them in here. And they send someone to the prison to get them. And they walk past the guards. And they walk past another section of guards. And they walk around the corner. And they get the key and they go through one door. And maybe they go up to the, the, the prison cell. And they open that door and nobody's in there. And they come out and say, where are the prisoners? Well, they're in the cell. No, they're not. Well, an angel had come and just led them right out, right under everyone's nose. And to make matters worse, they were locked up for preaching, and then they're back in the temple preaching more. What were they told? What were they told? Well, we see the message that that they were given. Look at verse 20. Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Can I just say this? Don't you... Never let anyone threaten you from giving out the gospel truth. And if someone ever gives you a threat, you double down and do it twice as much. And they're, they're, they're saying to these guys, hey, you better knock it off or we're going to lock you up. And they say, well, I guess you're just going to have to lock us up. They lock them up and the angel lets them out. And the angel says, get back in there and preach what? Preach the words of life. Now, a really quick thing here is that he didn't say get up and preach a feel-good sermon. He didn't say get up and make people uh, feel warm and fuzzy inside with the message that you preach. He said preach the word. Sounds like what Paul told Timothy: preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. And they got up and they preached the words. Of life, man. This must have just made uh, the Sadducees, this council, uh, the Senate of Israel, really angry. Number four, we see the disciples recaptured. The disciples recaptured. Look down with me at verse number twenty-four. Verse number twenty-four. The Bible says, "Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow." Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Can you see the shock on their face? Can you see the anger beginning to settle in? They're doing what? We locked them up for this. Um, Verse 26. Then when the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Now, when they said, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us, they were saying, what you're trying to do, is you're trying to have the people take vengeance against us since we had him killed. But you know what they needed? They needed Jesus' blood brought upon them. They did. They really did. But they just couldn't see it. So the disciples are recaptured. They're brought back in. And they are questioned on, why are you doing this? We have told you to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. We threatened you. We arrested you. Somehow you slipped out of prison and you go right back and do it again. You're doing it again. What gives? Uh, You need to stop. And we see the apostles, uh, rather the apostle Peter, we see number five, Peter's response. Peter's response. Look down at verse number 28. Verses 28 and 29. And we see that uh, Peter says, we don't need your permission. Saying, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. You know what he's saying? We don't need your permission to do this. We serve a higher power. You can tell us all day to stop. We're not going to stop. Because... Um, Uh, We'll obey our authorities when our authorities are in line with God. But when our authorities are not in line with God, we're going to obey God. And uh, would you rather us obey you or obey God? We've been commanded by God Almighty to preach this. We don't need your permission. Verse 30, look at verse 30. He says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. He points to their persecution against Jesus. He points to their persecution and says, look, you guys, don't, don't blame us for what you did to Jesus. It was you that had him hung on that tree. It was you that killed him. Look at verse 31. Him hath God exalted with his right hand. We see here the promotion of Jesus. To be a prince and a savior. For to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He says here, Jesus is sitting in heaven right now and he wants to forgive sins. We see here he's saying that he wants to even forgive their sins. Jesus has been promoted. He's not in the grave. You killed him. But he's at the right hand of the Father. And then verse 32, and we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. What's Peter saying? He's saying, we don't need your permission You persecuted Jesus, and then God in heaven promoted Him, and we're called to be preachers. And you can't make us stop. We're going to preach and preach and preach and preach and preach. We're going to lift up Christ, and we're going to preach and preach and preach. And it doesn't matter what you do to us. God has sent a revival to Jerusalem, and we're just going to keep on preaching and preaching and preaching. And you can't make it stop. Well, this didn't settle so well, as you would imagine. This didn't settle so well with the, with the council, with that, that religious council that had called them in front of them. And they wanted to kill them. Uh, they wanted to kill Peter for his words. In fact, look with me in verse number 33. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. They are so angered at Peter's response that they're ready to, you know, Take them out back, put them in a pit, and stone them. And there was a wise man or an older man in that crowd that kept that from happening. Notice point number six, Gamaliel's reasoning. Gamaliel's reasoning. Look down at verse number 34. We see, uh, verse 33, we saw the the anger of um, of the council. And then verse 34 through 39, we see the advice that Gamaliel had to offer. Now, by the way, before we read this, let me just say this is some of the most solid evidence that, that Jesus was authentic and real. And he did raise from the dead, okay? Look at, look at what it says here. Then stood there up one in the council of Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had a reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. So he orders the apostles out of the room, okay? Verse 34, 35, And said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. For before these days rose up a Theodos, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and and all as many as obeyed him were scattered and brought to naught after this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him he also perished and all even as many as obeyed him were dispersed and now i say unto you refrain from these men and let them alone for if this counsel or this work be of men it will come to naught if you've not underlined that in your bible underline that in your bible if you're in the habit of doing so it if this work, uh, if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. Verse 39. But if it be of God, ye cannot overthrow it, lest happily uh, uh, ye be found even to fight against God. What's he saying here? He's saying if this is of men, it'll fizzle out and go away on its own. If this is of God, you're not going to be able to get rid of it. If this is of God, are you going to strive against God? Are you going to attack God? Hey, leave these guys alone and let this thing play out. And uh, you know what? 2,000 years later, it's still playing out. Amen? And I would say it hasn't come to naught because it's true and it's real. And Gamaliel's reasoning is accurate and his advice was good. And sure enough, if they had tried to kill them, I don't know what would have happened. Uh, But God would have stepped up and in some way intervened. We see Gamaliel's reasoning. Notice number seven, the disciples reprimanded. The disciples reprimanded. Look at verse 40. And to him they agreed. And when they called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, when Peter and John were arrested, they were just given a verbal warning and release. They weren't beaten. But here, we see the persecution being ratcheted up. Here, they were physically wounded for their faith. Wounded for their faith. I've had to ask myself this question, especially as the political scene and uh, the American culture as a whole uh, grows more and more and more hostile toward Christianity. Would I still do what I do, both as a preacher and a Christian, if it meant getting beaten? Have you taken the time to ask yourself that question? How severe would the persecution have to quit before you quit? At what point would you say, it's it's just not worth it? It's just not worth it. And let me speak to those of you who grew up in church your whole life. Because I think sometimes those who grew up in church their whole life would be the first to jump ship when push came to shove. You see, if you're like me and you got saved as a child and this is all you know, you, you don't know what it's like to live a life of sin first and then be saved out of that. Persecution comes. And you're given an ultimatum. Walk away from the Bible and God or at least become very private about it or suffer, what would you do? What would you do? You see, as the persecutions ratcheted up, the tares and the wheat are quickly separated. The apostates and the true believers identify themselves really quick. The disciples were beaten here. The apostles were beaten here. And it's going to get worse. We'll see in a couple of chapters, one of them gets their head chopped off. Because of this. Now, I don't want to stand up here and just scare everyone. I don't think that this is coming like tomorrow. But I think these are things we need to start thinking about. Number seven, and I want to spend a few minutes on this one. Let's notice the disciples rejoicing. The disciples rejoicing. Now, before we read 41 and 42, can I tell you that sometimes, as a Christian, I've had people attack me? And sometimes I'm sure people have felt attacked by me. Well, maybe I've not handled a situation right. And when I have either been attacked or I have been a part of inadvertently attacking someone else. I don't generally respond or see others respond the way the disciples did here. I don't think I've ever come home and gone to Angela and said, Oh man, today was a great day at work. And she said, Well, what happened? And I said, Someone said something really nasty about me today on Facebook. Man, I am so thankful that I got attacked on Facebook today. Man, my day has just... I mean, I, th- this is what ministry is all about. Man, this is what I signed up for. Honey, I would just want to tell you, today I had someone come to my office and they cussed me out and uh, told me how terrible of a human being I am and just uh, made me feel like the scum of the earth. Man, I'm so happy uh, to be serving Jesus with my life. You know, that's never happened. I've never gone home and been thankful that I've been persecuted and attacked. I've got some growing to do. Look at verse 41. The disciples are arrested and beaten. And how do they respond? 41. And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Let me give you an A, B, and a C here below number 8. Notice letter A, their expectation. Do you know why they were able to rejoice when persecution came? They expected to be persecuted. They expected it. They were looking for it. Jesus had told them over and over and over again you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. Expect it, it's coming. And then they watched their master get persecuted. And they remembered back to that Olivet Discourse in John chapter 15, where Jesus said to the apostles, He said, you're not better than your master. They're going to persecute me. They will persecute you. You are not greater than your Lord. And when they persecute you, it's not because they hate you. It's because they hate me expect it. Do you know why they rejoiced when they were beaten? Because it was an identifier with Christ. They knew they were doing it the right way. They knew that they were serving Jesus the right way because they had angered the crowd. I remember when I was a young man uh, in school, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th grade. By the time I got to ninth grade, 8th, ninth grade, I was starting to overcome this but I can remember being 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th grade and being concerned, so concerned about what the other boys in the school thought about me, wanting to fit in and be accepted, wanting to be one of the guys and wanting them to accept me. And, and, um, and you know, I went to a Christian school and so there was some expectation that the boys were going to act in a way that was Christian and, and, and that wasn't true usually. In some cases it was. Uh, That wasn't true. I remember I got to the uh, place where I quit caring what the other boys in the school thought about me. And I was going to stand up for what was right, no matter what anyone thought. Can I tell you, that was a liberating day. That was a liberating moment. And then I got to the place where sometimes the other kids in the school would talk bad about me behind my back and call me a hypocrite or whatever it was they wanted to call me. And you know what? I got to the place where I found it where I was almost like, good, good. If that person over there was talking good about me, that would be a problem because that's not a very good person. I don't want someone who's so immoral to think highly of me. Right now, I want them to respect me and my faith, but I don't want them to think I'm like their best friend. I want to take a stand for what's right. And Christian, when we get persecuted... Hey, that's a marker that we're serving the Lord the way we ought to. If if you never ever suffer, I would really take a good, long, hard look in the Bible, in the mirror of God's Word, and, and ask, Am I doing this the right way? We see their expectation. Let her be notice their expression. Their expression. They left their rejoicing. Rejoicing together. I wonder if there wasn't one in the bunch who was maybe a little downtrodden by it and the rest of them maybe looked at him and said, hey man, don't be sad. Hey, this is what they did to Jesus and now we get to go through it too. One of the good things about church is that we can help build each other up. I see sometimes people come in the door and I can see they're struggling. They're, um, they're carrying a heavy burden. Uh, they're, 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 they're sad. They're hurting. Sometimes I can see when someone comes to the door that they're angry or bitter or frustrated. When you come into church, are you only worried about yourself? Or are you looking at other people so you can help folks out? Now, you don't need to be a busybody. Well, I saw brother such and such, and I think he, I saw sister such and such, and, I, you know, I, I think she's got a bitterness problem. Yep, there's a root of bitterness in her heart, let me tell you. You're not analyzing people so you can be a Pharisee. You're analyzing people so you can love on them and pray for them and help them. I'm looking around the room right now at people that I love deeply, people that I pray for regularly. And in the position of pastor, I know things about some of you that maybe only a small handful of people know. What I know about the crowd that many of the rest of you don't know is that you're not the only one in here that's hurting right. Well, there's a whole bunch of people in this room right now who are carrying some pretty heavy things. When you come through the doors of this church, we all want to smile and act like we have it all together. The truth is most of us don't have it all together. The truth is most of us are hurting. When we come to church, I don't think you need to come and just spill your guts and tell everyone every problem you ever have. But I do think you need to find a friend or two that you can trust. You need to bear one another's burdens, as Galatians 6 commands us to do. You know, sometimes we weep together. Sometimes we rejoice together. And sometimes a bunch of us are rejoicing while one of us is downtrodden. We come along the side of that one that's hurting, we put our arm around them, we help get them to a place where they can rejoice they can rejoice. We see here they were beaten and how did they leave? They left with an expression of joy and rejoicing. Let her see notice their enthusiasm. Hey, they didn't say, "Well, maybe we should just pack it up and go home." I I want to be really careful when I say this here because I, I I don't want to come across as an anarchist. Um I'm a little tired of Christians who say to me that we need to obey every single little thing the government tells us when it comes to restricting the church. Do you understand that the founders, when I say the founders, the foundational Christians, Jesus is the founder of the church, he's the cornerstone of the church, okay? But these Christians here disobeyed authority. You all understand that? They were told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And there was a little bit of a spirit of rebellion in them. In fact, they were told to stop and they upped it. Look back at verse 42. And daily, daily, daily. They went from just, you know, when they could gather at Solomon's temple, Solomon's porch in the temple, daily in the temple and... We're talking about plurality of services every day. And in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. The Sadducees and Council said, stop preaching. And they said, we're going to do it more. We're going to do it more. Now, I want to just say that when the government hands down an ordinance that is not in violation of Scripture, we ought to do our part to try to abide by it and follow it. But if the government ever tries to put their ordinance on what we can and cannot preach, when it comes to this Bible, we're going to disobey, and we're going to disobey instantaneously. In fact, we're probably going to double down on it. Keep your hands off of our Bible. We're going to preach the book. And whatever comes will come. We're going to trust the Lord to protect us. What to expect when God sends revival? You can expect to see some pretty sensational things. God's going to do some great things here at White Oak Baptist Church. I believe we're on the cusp of revival. We need to get our hearts in line with each other. We need to make sure we're filled with the Spirit of God and we're passionate about His work and we're out preaching the gospel. I believe we're right on the cusp of revival. We can expect to see some pretty great things, but we can also expect to see some opposition and some persecution. And when it comes, let's not shiver in fear. Let's stand and rejoice. Amen? Let's stand together for a time of invitation. Lord, I pray that you'd help us this evening to do our part, to bring revival to this church. Lord, may we follow the example here in Acts 5. When times get tough, may we rejoice. Lord, may we trust that you're going to do a great work in our midst. Lord, guide us and help us and show us where we can be better. Sometimes we're so self-absorbed with our own problems that we don't see the hurt in the eye of our neighbor right across the pew, right across the way. Lord, help us to be concerned and compassionate about one another. In Jesus' name, amen.